Today's reading is from, continuing on from 1 Kings, chapter 10, verse 1. And the context is that we are seeing how Solomon's kingdom is growing under God's blessing. Uh, He's built the temple for the Lord's name, and now the Lord's name and Solomon's name is becoming known internationally. And that was without TikTok or um, Instagram. It was being spread all over the uh, countryside. And we see today as uh, people came to, particularly the Queen of Sheba, came to uh, gather some of his wisdom. But we also see the beginning of Solomon's demise. So 1 Kings 10 verse 1. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. We are now going to move to verse 23 in that same chapter. Verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 
shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. And then on to chapter 12, just the first couple of verses of chapter 11, pardon. Chapter 11, just following on. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They are from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wife's Wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Thank you, Lois. Happy Mother's Day to you and to all the mums out there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Happy Mother's Day to all the mums. Yeah, give a cheer for the mums. You. Um, now, Lois, that's quite the passage for Mother's Day. Thank you for that. Um, 700 wives, 300 concubines. What, what are we meant to do with that? Uh, there must have been a lot of mothers there, I guess, uh, in the mix. Um, but what I want to do today is set before you a vision of a beautiful life, uh, a vision of a beautiful life, and I want to compare it to a beautiful melody. So I'm just going to play some beautiful music in the background, um, and at the end, just nice and quietly there in the background. Now at the end, I want to show you what this life, what a beautiful life looks like for mums, uh, I want to show you what a beautiful life looks like for children and families, uh, but also for all of us. Uh, what does a beautiful life look like? Now, this music, some of you might recognise it. Does anyone feel like they recognise this music? It was played at the coronation just before the king entered. It's not Zadok the priest, by the way. Uh, just before the king entered, as the dignitaries and celebrities from all over the world gathered for the coronation of King Charles III. So, does anyone know what the piece of music is? It's Handel. It's called The Arrival of the Queen of Sheba. Uh, and so, it's, it's part of the Solomon Oratorio uh, that Handel wrote as he reflected on the early chapters of 1 Kings, which is the part of the Bible that we've been reflecting on uh, over these last few weeks. And it sets the scene for our first point. And here is the first point. The beautiful melody. Solomon's splendor. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, uh, just nice and quiet now. Just quietly fade that music in. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've been uh, working our way through uh, this book of 1 Kings. We witnessed the coronation of Solomon back in chapter 1. God asked Solomon... What is one thing you would like me to give you? 
And of all the things Solomon could have asked for, he asked for a listening heart. A listening heart. A heart that humbly listens to the Lord God. And God was so delighted with that request that he not only gave Solomon a a discerning heart and great wisdom, he also gave him wealth and prosperity and peace uh, so that the kingdom of Israel became a great kingdom. And so wise and wealthy was Solomon's kingdom that it gained international reputation. So in 1 Kings chapter 10, we hear of the arrival of the Queen of Sheba. And did you know, if you go down to the New South Wales Art Gallery, uh, there's a grand painting there, painted uh, 100 or 200 years ago, of this event, of the arrival of the Queen of Sheba uh, at Solomon's court. Ethiopians today claim that she is one of their queens, uh, one of their ancient queens, uh, the Queen of Sheba. Verse 4, so if you've got your Bible, uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4. So chapter 10, verse 4. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. So this grand queen of the ancient world comes and views Solomon and his kingdom And it was just so impressive, she is overwhelmed by the splendour of it all. And listen to her conclusion. I'm going to pop it on the screen. Notice what she says. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Do you see what's going on? She saw... God's king, she saw the wisdom, the righteousness, the justice of his kingdom, the peace, and she recognised that these were gifts from God, uh, that God was the giver of all this wisdom and this greatness, and so she praised the name of God for what she saw evident amongst God's people. Now, I want to say this is how it's meant to be for God's people. God's people, God's heart is that we are like a city on a hill. That was the Old Testament image, a city on a hill shining the light and the glory of God into a dark world so that the nations might come and witness and give praise to the true God who made the heavens and the earth but who enters into this personal relationship uh, with people. Uh, And so... Sheba saw this and she was overwhelmed. Now, if this was true in Solomon's day, how much more should it be true for us? So in Solomon's day, you had Solomon the king. He was a good king, but as we'll see, he had great flaws. We follow the greatest king ever, the king of kings. And as we come to him and as we are transformed by relationship with him, so we ought to shine as a light in this dark world. Um, so our king, King Jesus, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, look at what it says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? He is where all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is found. If we come to Jesus 
and, and unite to him, trust in him, obey him, then in this world of confusion and upheaval, you know, a world where so many people live without any solid foundation, so many people live without hope, so many people are just like a boat adrift in a storm without an anchor. And yet we have, we have this hope, we have an anchor, we have solid foundation through our King Jesus and the life he lived, the death he paid in our place, his resurrection. It just makes all the difference. And so as we humbly come to Jesus and learn from him, trust him and obey him, God will give us wise, discerning hearts. And it will be evident. Um, other people will take notice and hopefully recognise that the wisdom and beauty on display is not ours, it's something that has been given us from God. Uh, and it's because we're united to God's King, Jesus. Uh, and I want to say... I see this in action, right? So this, this church community, we're not perfect, right, by any means, right? And, and it doesn't take long to scratch the surface and see that. And yet, there is something beautiful that God is growing and, and creating here as we gather around his son, Jesus. And I could tell you dozens of stories that testify to the beauty of what God is doing amongst us. But because it's Mother's Day, I'm going to tell you just one story about my mum. Uh, so bear with me. Uh, and uh, I've told my mum these things yesterday as I caught up for lunch, so I'm not you know, spilling the beans or anything like that. But my mum is beautiful. right? She'll be here at the 10.30 service. She'll get to hear this. But she is beautiful. And here's the thing. It's not the beauty that, the, you know, the glamour magazines that you have, Vogue, and I don't even know what the other glamour magazines are, but the glamour magazines, none of them have approached my mum to have her on the front cover. That's because they're rubbish. Uh, that's because, in fact, they don't understand or portray true beauty. Would you agree with me? Uh, we've got we've to revolutionise the way we think about beauty because what we're doing is we're learning from these glamour magazines a superficial, an utterly superficial perspective on beauty, but that's not true beauty, is it? Uh, true beauty is found in attributes of love and courage and compassion and kindness and, and toughness and resilience and perseverance. And as I say those things, sometimes you go, that they feel incompatible, toughness and love, you know, that... that rugged determination and kindness and yet when you see them come together in a person you just go that is beautiful uh, and I have the privilege of having a mum that has displayed those attributes and for all of us kids uh, we gathered together for lunch yesterday we would all testify we know that it's a bit, little bit emotional for me here. Um, we know that our mother's beauty has been given to her by God himself. Uh, and we, we, we were in no doubt growing up 
that, she, that the source of her beauty was her relationship with God, her prayerful dependence on God, her humbly listening to God's word. And it is beautiful uh, when you see it. Uh, and I've just selfishly picked my mum, but there are so many stories I see of that amongst us. And it, it is impressive. Like the Queen of Sheba came and looked at Solomon and was overwhelmed. When you have true eyes to see true beauty... Uh, and you see it in action, it is a beautiful thing. Uh, And I want to speak to all of us at this point, and I want to say, ask God to give you that discerning heart, that listening heart, that humility that comes to the feet of Jesus, prepared to trust him and to listen to him and imitate him as you live your lives. And... He will not only forgive you and cleanse you, he will transform you into his beauty more and more, day by day, as you listen, as you learn from him, trust him and obey him. And as that happens, other people will look on and our prayer is that they will look on and not go how great you are, but how great your saviour, your king is. How great is your God? Uh, Pray for that, please, uh, that that will happen. Now, come back to 1 Kings. I want you to listen to the music again and listen carefully. So we're just going to play it. Now, do you notice what's happening? Every now and then, the beautiful melody gives way to discordant notes. It's not quite right, is it? You just go, oh. Can you, can you hear that there's some discordance coming through? Well, keep, keep playing it. But this is what's happening as you read these chapters of 1 Kings. Every now and then you see this beautiful life of Solomon, but every now and then there's a note that just seems wrong. Uh, and you kind of ignore it at first, but after a while it just becomes too obvious. After a while, it just totally drowns out the beautiful melody. Uh, and what, what gives way, the beautiful melody gives way. How, how good an illustration was that, hey? Uh, the beautiful melody gives way to, what's the second point? The discordant melody we hear of Solomon's decline. And, and as I say, in the early chapters of 1 Kings, you kind of hear it if, you, if you're listening and you go, was that a wrong note? Uh, and then it just kind of seems like these wrong notes just cascade to the point where the beautiful melody is totally ruined. Um, and, uh, and by the end of Two Kings, so one and two kings is one book, and by the end of Two Kings, the whole kingdom will be destroyed. But Solomon triggers the collapse. Uh, even just after the peak of his greatness comes the start of the decline. Uh, And I want to ask two questions. What went wrong when it was so good and so beautiful? What went wrong? Two things in particular. Firstly, Solomon stopped listening to God. So I want want you to listen to some of the descriptions in chapter 10. Uh, Feel free to follow along with me. Verse 14. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly 
was 666 talents. That is 20,000 kilograms of gold, 20 tonnes of gold yearly. At today's prices, that's $2 billion worth of gold. Verse 15, not including the revenues from merchants and traders, from the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. Verse 21, all Solomon's goblets were gold and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver. Verse 27, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Like silver was almost just like a throwaway item but, uh, and so much gold that silver just became so second rate. So here's the first point. As you're reading it, you go, there's an extraordinary amount of silver and gold here. Surely, like, a tad excessive. Uh, it, just, it just doesn't seem like a humble kingdom that Solomon is establishing. So you've got this kind of doubt going on. Verse tw- 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Now, remember, this is a time when, when Israel had never enjoyed such peace from the enemies around about. And yet Solomon is amassing chariots. Chariots were like the tanks of the ancient world. So all these tanks, thousands of thousands of horses. Verse 28, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew, the raw merchants purchased them from Q at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, like because they were given silver away anyway, uh, a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. So we've got horses and chariots from Egypt. Uh, and it just it doesn't... It sounds like a discordant note, doesn't it? Um, and... It almost feels like Solomon's becoming like an international arms dealer, you know, buying and selling uh, all this stuff. And then you come to chapter 11, verse 3, when it just feels like a clincher. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. So I've kind of understated the point. He had too many wives. Uh, In my experience, one is the perfect number. Uh, not too many, not too few. Um, but one of those things, all of those things, as you read them, they just sound like these discordant notes that disturb this beautiful melody uh, and start to drown it out. Now, let me take you back to Deuteronomy 17, because I think as you read this, it just becomes more clearly. I think it tunes your ears to listen out for the discordant notes. Verse 16. This is, this is from 500 years before Solomon. This is the law God gave. And just to have, have a look at how it's expressed. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you you're not to go back that way again. Remember the first thing we noted? He's got all these horses and chariots and they're coming from Egypt. So, so we kind of highlight that bit, I think. Yep, there it is. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Well, we've noted that one. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. It's almost like Solomon read, read this and he decided, I'm going to do exactly the opposite. Because uh, just tick them off. 
Uh, When the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself in a scroll a copy of this law. It's to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life. So what the king was meant to do was take the book of Deuteronomy, write a personal copy of it so that he's actually written it out by hand and then he was to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. Part of what will happen in the chapters to come is the resentment that the people of Israel felt as they were, as they were basically subject to forced labour to achieve all of Solomon's you know, great building projects. Uh, so not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So those are the words God had given to Solomon the king. And he was meant to reflect on them day after day after day. And you ask the question, what happened? What went wrong? Um, And there's two options. Either he stopped reading the law, he stopped reading the word of God, or he stopped obeying the word of God, even though he knew it all too well. But either way, he catastrophically failed to listen to God. He didn't remember the Lord, but he forgot or despised even, perhaps, the word of the Lord. And so that beautiful melody became utterly discordant. Now, this is so different. We ought to rejoice when we look at our King Jesus and just see how different he is. How beautiful was his life? So humble. There's never a doubt you have with Jesus, is there, that he's accumulating at the cost of others. Uh, you know, didn't have too many wives. Uh, he, he, he obeyed God to great cost. He was obedient even to death on the cross. Uh, so much he held fast to God's word. Now, did you notice at the coronation last week, this is my last coronation story, perhaps, right? Uh, but, you know, I've got to milk it for all it's worth. So there's the coronation. This is the official program. During the coronation, they presented the king with a Bible. Uh, and this is what was said. Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and of the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Uh, and, and so he's presented with the Bible. You can see him kissing the Bible. He swears an oath uh, to, 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 to rule according to the word of God. Um, so that's... Uh, it's interesting, wasn't it, just how front and centre God's word is as such a treasure. Um, His mother certainly testified regularly to her faith in God. Will King Charles keep his promise? Will he listen to God's word and obey God's word in his rule? Uh, I think some of us watching the ceremony 
we watch with a little bit of scepticism, but only time will tell, won't it? But we watch with scepticism because so often we see people who honour God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And so they go through these ceremonial processes, but their lives testify that they do not know God. They don't keep his word. They don't honour him. Now, in the song from Elvis, uh, Tim put up earlier, we know that Elvis' mum, she wanted to pass on to him her love for God and his word. And I want to say to the mums and to the dads out there, you cannot guarantee your children will love God. But keep at it. Keep at it. Your attitude will impact your kids. They will see your priorities. What, they will see what's important to you and they will take notice. Um, so there's a beautiful moment in Paul's letter to Timothy. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, so on the left-hand side to begin with, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm now persuaded lives in you also. Uh, we don't know exactly the backstory, but it sounds like his grandmother became a believer, and then his mother, and then they passed the faith on uh, to Timothy. And then in chapter 3, Paul says, As for you, continuing what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Can you see how tightly connected relationship, that family relationship, he knew his mother, he knew his grandmother, he saw in them a testimony of their faith and their devotion to the Scripture, and that then gave him a grounding and a confidence uh, and a certainty. You've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Mums and dads, you have a precious opportunity, like a weighty opportunity to influence your kids. Uh, and they are watching. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but they are. And, and, and you will, in later life, you know, they will be processing uh, your modelling to them. So you can't make them believe, but you can model and foster a, an active, vital faith in God, a dependence on him. A love of his word. Uh, I, I want to I, I say, I don't want us to set the bar too high. So I wanna, let me tell you about my family. Um, my parents, uh, they, every now and then they would try to get a family Bible time going. But we, we the kids, constantly derailed it. Uh, and they just became so disheartened that they, just, they never made it happen in our household. I think one time we read through a lot of the book of Exodus, but most of our lives, my sister in particular, was incredibly antagonistic. Uh, when we'd get together and we'd, we'd try to have this beautiful, you know, because we'd, we'd go on holidays with other families and they would have these Bible devotion times and, and then my, my dad would come back and he'd try to get us together and we were just, 
resistant uh, and it was, it was tough going. Um, uh, but mum, particularly, what she did instead was just took these little moments, you know, when we were vulnerable or when we were alone or, you know, driving together somewhere and she would just feed in some spiritual insight, uh, just direct us towards God, pray with us. Um, and my mum and dad made it a priority to gather with God's people every week. It was just the pattern of our lives. It was lovely to hear Rowan testify uh, that the legacy of his mum is that she prioritised getting him to youth, getting him to Sunday school, uh, getting here to church on Sunday. Now, my church growing up wasn't inspiring, right? Uh, and I won't say any more than that, but like, it wasn't inspiring. Uh, But mum in particular made it very clear what she believed was most important for us, hearing God's word and gathering amongst his people. So mums and dads, you cannot make your kids believe. And for some of you, that's a grief. You just wish you could kind of make them believe these things. But what you can do is model what is most important. And I want to ask a challenging question. If your kids were to look in on your lives and your modelling, what would they conclude is the most important thing for you, for them? Uh, Because sometimes we can get so caught up in other things and not prioritise the things that ought to and possibly are the most important things in our lives. Uh, You know, gathering with God's people hearing God's word, humbly depending on him. And and if there's any kids out there today, I won't, you know, look you in the eye, but I will be speaking at church at five and I'll I'll talk to the kids there. Um, I want to encourage the kids out there, encourage your parents in this. Don't be like me and making life hard on my parents when they tried to have their uh, attempts to have a Bible time. And as your parents bring you to church, they want what is best for you. Uh, trust them in it. Mate, you, can, you as kids can make your parents' job miserable and difficult, or you can make it a joy. And I just want to encourage the Christian kids out there, make your parents' job a joy. So, back to Solomon. As we consider Solomon and this discordant melody as he stopped listening to God, I think it's a challenge for us. What part does God's word play in your life? We want to think about what part it plays in our family life, but what part does it play in my life? Because our kids will pick up hypocrisy, won't they? Uh, If we're trying to force something on them that's not part of our lives, they will pick it up, uh, that discordance. Uh, And so the most important thing for us is to have a vital dependence on God, a listening heart ourselves. Will you pray for that for yourself? Um, And what changes would need to take place in your life to prioritise that? Hearing God's word, gathering with his people. So what went wrong with Solomon? He stopped listening to God But the second thing is, his heart became divided. 
Um, so earlier in 1 Kings chapter 3, we're told that Solomon loved God. Uh, and it's a beautiful little phrase, he loved God. But we come to chapter 11, and that only heightens the tragedy. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 2, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they'll surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines. His wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, I cannot get my head around this. I just keep reading this and going, what was Solomon thinking? Uh, and I think I know the answer. What is, you know, so 700, this is the 700 wives, 300 concubines bit. What, what was he thinking? Where did, did his wisdom just fly out the door at that point? I think what Solomon's doing is he stopped listening to God and he started observing the patterns of the nations around about. And their kings, you know, had grand palaces. And their kings and queens had many wives, their kings had many wives and concubines. And they married politically and formed alliances. And, and it seems like Solomon has adopted that pattern. But when Jesus, the greater king, when he reflects on God's commands for marriage, he makes it very clear that from the beginning, God's intention was one man, one woman, united for life. Uh, that beautiful union was always God's intention for marriage. But not only did Solomon have hundreds of wives, they were from other nations and they worshipped other gods. And because of his love for his wives... He accommodated their religious needs, their religious preferences. He enabled their worship of other gods. And it's just, as I've read this, it's just reminded me how powerful family dynamics are. Family dynamics are, are very powerful. Like, I, I know it's hard to relate our families to Solomon's family. It was just so different in so many ways. But in the Bible... Um, the Bible uses the image of, uh, of a yoke and oxen to talk about a marriage partnership. Uh, and so what you'd do is you'd put a beam across the oxen and that enabled you to take the strength of two oxen and if they were heading in the same direction, you basically double the horsepower or the oxen power. You know, at, so th- what, what the yoke did is that it just enabled you to draw the power of this union of two animals together Um, and marriage can be such a powerful partnership for good Uh, and that's God's intention and desire but the Bible warns us of being unevenly yoked where one is heading this way and the other is heading in the opposite direction and it actually rather than doubling the impact it actually hinders both of them getting anything done It makes productive partnership just so much more difficult. So if in a marriage, one of you has your heart set on Jesus and serving him, 
but the other does not share in that commitment, then it will be difficult. And I know that some of you are in that very situation. Uh, you find yourself in that circumstance. I, um, I was just a, a couple of years ago, I was talking to one of the mums from our church and she expressed it to me this way. She said, my marriage causes me the most stress of anything in my life. I want to go to church, but my partner is not a Christian. I feel forced to choose, and it makes me very unhappy. It's a confusing situation that haunts me every day. Now, my heart breaks as I just think about just that, that, that difficulty that that brings, uh, where, where one partner is wanting to follow God and serve him, but the other doesn't share in that desire and drive, uh, it does set up a tension uh, that, that either remains a tension or there's a compromise. Um, and of, uh, Sorry, I just want to say, I want to acknowledge that it's diff- it's, this is difficult for both partners. Uh, and if you're here this morning supporting your partner in their faith in God and recognising that it's important to them, I want to to honour you for supporting your partner in it. Uh, Good on you. My prayer for you is that you come to know Jesus as well. So secretly I'm praying for you. But even if that doesn't happen, I just want to say good on you for supporting them and you are very welcome here anytime. Um, And of course, these dynamics are not just about husbands and wives, are they? Sometimes you get it amongst family members pulling in different directions uh, where some follow Jesus, some don't. Uh, it just means that family can be hard. Family life can be hard and there can be this temptation to compromise and to kind of give in. So come back to the beautiful melody. I'm just going to play it quietly if I can. Yeah, beautiful. Solomon showed us a glimpse of a beautiful melody. Uh, a beautiful life with a discerning, listening heart. But that melody became so discordant because he stopped listening to God, his heart became divided. Now, Jesus is the greater king, yeah? The king of kings. He lives such a beautiful life in every day, in every way. And as we come to him, he invites us to imitate that beautiful melody in our lives as we trust him, as we keep listening to him, obeying him, and as we give our hearts in undivided devotion to him. I just want to finish by um, the Queen, uh, a few years ago in her kind of end of year address, she was reflecting on the sacrifice of Jesus in our place and his forgiveness. And she finished her address by quoting the words of a hymn. And she said this, What can I give him? poor as I am. If I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I can give him my heart. I'm going to lead us in prayer and pray that God will give us undivided hearts of devotion. God, our Father, we want to thank you for Jesus, for his beautiful life, for his compassion 
his toughness, his love, his resilience, his obedience and perseverance. But, but more than anything, that, that love for us that took him to the cross. We thank you that he is our king. Father, we know that we fail to live the lives we ought to. We don't always honour Jesus as our king. We don't always bring you the glory you deserve. Sometimes we stop listening to your word. Uh, sometimes we ignore you and chase after other things. Please forgive us through the blood of our humble King Jesus, who gave his life for us. Forgive us and transform us. Give us undivided hearts to love you and to listen to your word all our days. And please use us to bring glory to you and to your son Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.